Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. Pretty happy to be here. I wanted to, well, let's just go ahead and get started on this one. I've got um, a guest. This is Jeff Beaumont. He is from Canada. Do I have all of that right? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, and you are an ex-Scientologist, second gen, like me, raised in it or around it, and you have a story to tell, yeah? I do. Excellent. Well, um, I'm happy to host you today. So welcome to my show. And I guess um, maybe we should just kind of get started at the beginning and move forward from there. Sure. Yeah, it was a dark and stormy night. You know, I was born. No. Um, no, like you said, I was born into Scientology. My parents, um, my parents met in Scientology. My mom was on staff in Toronto uh, and my dad had kind of stumbled in high uh because he was very much a hippie uh and scientology according to him saved him from drugs and so he decided to join and my parents met they had me uh i was fully raised in scientology right in the halls of the scientology organization in vancouver actually because both my parents were on staff so they went from toronto to vancouver correct at some point okay Cool. Other side of the country. Yeah. Um, quite a move. It is. Yeah. I was um, about, you know, the length of between my, my dad's fingers to what halfway up his forearm when I moved. So I don't remember anything about Toronto. Um, but Vancouver is where I was raised, like right in Vancouver proper, right in the city. And um, yeah, I basically grew up there and I was sent to a Scientology school. Never set foot in a public school in my life. Oh, that's an interesting piece of information because I've not been aware of private Scientology schools in Canada. We're well aware in America of the Delphi and the Learning Academies and even the the desert, you know, prison camp, trouble teen industry uh, sort of setups that Scientology, Scientologists, I should say, have created out in Mojave Desert or Canyon Oaks or whatever. Well, Canyon Oaks was Sea Org. But anyway, Canada as well. There's a, there was a school there. Yeah, uh, there used to be. It's no, it's defunct now. Okay. Uh, it was called Effective Education, which, um, you know, it's kind of an ironic name because the education system there was not particularly effective. It is. It was all based on Alvin Hubbard technology. So we did stuff like learning how to learn, study skills for life, basic study manual, all that stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So that's that's how my education went. And this was your, this was from first grade forward? Yep. Is kindergarten. The ki- kindergarten forward. And the Canadian system, I'm, I'm, I've just never really bothered to even look that deeply into it, but it's a similar grade school, one through 12 system or K through 12 system? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, wow. So you, st- so did they have, you know, I went to an Apple school for a year as a very young child. Um, and that was a private Scientology school, these Apple schools that were around for a little while. Um, and I don't remember much. I remember learning to read in public school. I remember when we switched over, I think it was either at kindergarten or first grade level. I was doing this, this private Scientology place. And I don't really remember much about it or learning much there. Um, how did they teach you how to read and math and all that kind of stuff? Did they cover the basics? Yeah. I mean, so the way the, 
it wasn't grades. They used what, what's called forms. So form one, two, three, four, whatever, as you progressed and got more advanced. And so it's, it's basically the same. Uh, similar. So I, I guess in BC, there is a like specific curriculum that you will have to teach to be a school, to be accredited. Mm-hmm. And so they would have to teach that. But you'd also do um, stuff that was built like computer program, uh, computer skills program. And um, I remember vividly one math program that was on the computer where it was timed and you had to basically answer the question to the math question with a certain amount of time. So it was all very timed. So it's like reactionary Mm -hmm. almost, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just pretty standard stuff with the exception of the fact that you also learn L. Ron Hubbard stuff. Right. Was that timed thing? That was just a standard math assignment. That wasn't like the Scientology IQ test. No, no, no. (laughs) And I actually don't know uh, who made it, but it was just like you use the keypad, the number keypad, and you'd be staring at the screen and you just like respond. Oh, you know, as fast as you can. And the, the more advanced you got, the the less time you had to do it, basically. Interesting. Yeah, huh, never heard of that before, but yeah. That, yeah, I get it. I see how that works. So, okay, so that was upbringing through school. What now? Obviously, I guess then. Well, maybe not so obviously. I wonder. Were other were the other? How how big was the? Just because I'm curious about this, since you brought it up, how many kids were at this school? How how big was it? And were they all kids of Scientology parents? Yeah, pretty much all Scientology kids, and in fact, a lot of them. Uh, recently, as I've been speaking out. I've been getting stuff sent to me from there, from people who I knew back then. And some of them are actually in RTC, OSA, um, and various other Sea Org posts um, who went to school with me. Um, But there was, if I can recall correctly, about maybe 60 children. Um, In the beginning, it was all Scientology, but Vancouver Scientology is very small. And so you can't really sustain a school with Vancouver pricing and everything, which is Scientologists. So... It went from effective education, then it turned to what's called, they called it Heritage 3Rs, but just a just a name change, different owner um, who's still in Scientology now. Mm-hmm. And they started accepting like um, ESL kids. So people from uh, China, Korea, uh, and some actually from India as well. And so they were non-Scientologists. And that's when things really fell apart for that school because, you know, the curriculum wasn't proper and i think people who and it was very expensive too Mm. like back then i think it was about six hundred dollars a month to get sent there which is quite a bit for you know early 90s kind of money oh yeah that's that's a lot of money no matter what i mean geez that's that's you know that's uh, a third of people's rent (laughs) i'll say these days right i don't know um wow that's that's pretty expensive and Mm -hmm. i guess with their kids coming home you know, sort of reciting L. Ron Hubbard, maybe there was some people <laughs> a little disturbed by that, right? Yeah. Huh. It just really fell apart then and moved to this like tiny little office, essentially an office building on top of a, you know, a bunch of restaurants like Subway and so forth. And then it just kind of disappeared after that. Petered so. out. How long were you there? Uh, so from kindergarten till I was 14, which is when I was recruited for the Sea Org. Oh, wow. Okay. So it lasted long enough for you to get your whole education there. Essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah wow. all, I've, like I said, I've never set foot in a public school. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, wow. Okay. So how far, what was it? 14. So that's sophomore year? 
Yeah. Something to like be that. honest, like because it, it wasn't graded, I don't know what grade it was specifically, but right. it's whatever it is in America, it's standard in Canada too, as far as grades and age. Got apparently. it. Okay. But I was kind of ahead. I was kind of ahead of the curve a little bit. So I probably one grade ahead. Okay. And um, the forms they used, were those similar to what Delphi does with the check sheets? That sounds familiar to me. They'll have yep. these preset, do A, do B, read C, do D, you know, do these things in a particular sequence. And once you finish it, you're done. And then you move on to the next level or check sheet or whatever. And so it's sort of a self-paced, kids could get through it at different speeds, but they're yep, all covering exactly. the same material. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. And I think it was actually based on exactly on Delphi stuff. Okay. We actually, it was like hundred percent connected with the people. They're all Scientologists that run it. Right. And actually I remember one field trip, it went down to Delphi um, to visit the campus and so forth. Oh, wow. Down in Oregon, the main one. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Cause Delphi has been the longest and most successful of the Scientology private school institutions. Um, there's a Delphi, Los Angeles, Delphi, Oregon, those, you know, outside Portland is the, the largest and most well-known one, but they, and they have non-Scientology kids go there, uh, as well as Scientology kids, but it's all very, very Scientology culture. Was there ethics and that kind of stuff? Was that apparatus also part of it? Yes. Uh, the principle was, uh, was a Scientologist. Her name is Jenny, and she's actually still in Scientology now. Mm. Um, I actually don't know specifically whether she was in the Sea Org or not prior to this, but she was definitely inv very much involved in um, ethics in Scientology from or in organizations. Oh, and she was she was pretty harsh, um, mm. but it is all about ethics. And you know, we did assist and so forth if we got hurt. Anything Scientology related was done uh, to us as children. Wow. Uh, full-blown assists being done on the school ground. So it was yeah. just a full-blown Scientology environment, even for these ESL kids, even for these non-Scientology kids. Yeah. Wow. Um, because getting the full Scientology, you know, school experience will be KRs? Everything. Wow. Oh yeah, there was there was KRs. Okay, so you were is it was a snitch culture. In other words, knowledge reports uh, are those reports that Scientologists will write on each other when they observe bad behavior or bad indicators, right? He's he looks suspicious. He looks like he's up to no good. I'm going to write a report on him and then the, the ethics officer can go check it out. It's very very uh you know, everybody's kind of always watching each other. Was yeah. how did that I guess you never really had a comparative of a public school to compare it to, but what, what, what was that environment like for you? What was your experience of it? How did you feel about what was happening? All those, I mean, as, was that normal and you just kind of rolled with it or were you bucking that system or how did, how did it go for you? Well, as you can see, I'm a redhead and we tend to be a bit stubborn. Uh, <laughs> and we are also, uh, and my mom was very stubborn as well. And so I, I got that from her, but I got in trouble fairly often. I, I acted out a lot and I had no, no problem uh, going against authority figures, uh, which tended to get me in, in, in trouble. Um, so it did, it was normal and I definitely had KRs written on me. Um, but you know, I survived it and it, it was something I was used to cause I had also done later on, you know, let's say, um, ages of like eight or nine and 10 and so forth. I was getting into courses at the church Scientology in Vancouver. Um, like, um, ups and downs in life course, you know, all the basic ones. 
uh, success through communication I did at that age as well. Oh, wow. So your folks were not just satisfied with indoctrinating you in Scientology principles at school, but now as soon as possible, I mean, 10 years old, let's get you over to the org doing the introductory and beginning services that Scientology offers there. Yeah. Well, they're both very hardcore Scientologists. My dad being the executive director of CCHR, um, Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Oh, right. And my mom was the FBO for Vancouver Day. Oh, okay. So. Okay. And and for the audience, what that means is she was the... <laughs> Flag banking officer. Yes. She was basically an accountant, administrative, financial person. You might compare it to a, a lot of functions of a CFO type person yeah. for, a, for a single organization. That's your, that's the level of the flag banking officer. It's a, it's what's called a network posting. It's usually a Sea Org member even, uh, that's gone in and out over the years. Um, but it's, uh, but it's a high level position. And then your dad being the executive director of CCHR, you want to explain what that is? Yeah, for sure. So CCHR or Citizens Commission on Human Rights is the, uh, anti-psychiatry psychology front group. Uh, run by the Church Scientology in order to, their their stated purpose is to eradicate quote unquote injustices in the psychiatric field. Um, yeah, but truth, what's the real purpose? Be, <laughs> yeah, truth be told, LRH was uh, upset that they didn't want to take his quote unquote technology and use it, and he got a little bit uh, thin skinned about it and started attacking them. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I've started wondering recently. I'll share this with you and and the audience here. I've started wondering recently about that story. Because, <clears throat> mm-hmm. you know, it comes from L. Ron Hubbard. And you have to wonder, did he ever really, you know, the, the legend goes, let's, let's just segue in this for just a second. The yeah. legend goes that L. Ron Hubbard, pre-publication of Dianetics, Modern Science, Mental Health in 1950, before he published it, he claimed that he sent it to, or a, a transcript, or not a transcript, a, 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 a document, laying out what Dianetics is and how it works as a therapeutic treatment uh, modality for mental health problems and psychological issues, and that it can cure psychosomatic illness. And Hubbard made a very bold claim that 75, 80% of all illnesses were psychosomatic in nature. That's pretty, that's pretty out there. Medicine doesn't think it's that high. And he said that Dianetics could cure this. And he sent it to, he said he sent it to the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and the AMA, the American Medical Association. And that he had heard back from them uh, that they had rejected it, sent it back saying it doesn't look like it's much use or if it's much, if, if, if anything's going to come of this, we'll hear about it. And it was just sort of this brush off sort of response. And the more you think about the details of that, the less sense that whole story makes. And we've all run with it forever because it's a legendary story in Scientology. It's literally Scientology lore. And and I have to and I and I just I can't prove one way or the other that it did or didn't happen. Nobody can because those letters don't even exist. We've never seen them. But um, but one wonders whether Hubbard was just picking a fight just to pick a fight and whether he might have even retconned that history after the fact of getting all these negative reviews in 1950 on Dianetics from reputable scientists and and scholars and medical doctors. Yeah, certainly could be. I mean, you can't really take anything that was said by L. Ron Hubbard at face value, um, given all the uh, apparent accomplishments uh, that he did not actually achieve. That's right. You know, 
That's right. So, so it's just a, it's just that you reminded me of that. I've been thinking about that recently, and I haven't really voiced all of that, but I just since it came up in the context here. So, regardless of that, Scientology is absolutely positively whether that story is true or not. It is absolutely true that L. Ron Hubbard has had uh, a you know very big grudge uh, or chip on his shoulder or whatever towards psychiatry and psychology to a lesser degree. Ever since Dianetics, I mean, ever since that came out and we've been hearing from Hubbard. And um, so to the point that sort of the pinnacle of this, as far as I was concerned in my history in Scientology, was when Mike Rinder stood on the stage as the as the commanding officer of, of OSA Int, right? And he would come out and do these briefings back in the day. And he was always the psych guy. He was always coming out and giving these briefings about how Scientology was literally taking out psychiatry and that we were going to existentially destroy them. And they would be gone and there would be no more psychiatry. And CCHR was the group that L. Ron Hubbard created in 1969 to enact that destruction. Yep. Does that, does that sound accurate from what your dad was? Oh, yeah. Like, I could go on and on. And actually, I've been having conversations with my sister, not to get too deep into the weeds on that part of it. But her and I, uh, when my parents divorced, we kind of both went with one parent. And so we didn't spend our childhood together uh, after a certain age. But before that, we were both being taken to uh, psych bus. Um, and we were both on front pages of newspapers locally um, supporting the anti-psychiatry movement. In one point where there was one a lady dressed up as a psychiatrist and she had a big overstuffed kind of plushy Ritalin or Prozac pill. And I was the kid with a pill being shoved down his throat, you know, to dramatize drugging of children, mm-hmm. you know, and I wasn't given this opportunity uh, as, as a choice. It was just, that's what I was doing. And it happened to her as well. So fully indoctrinated. Right. How, um, well, let's, let's, let's talk, let's talk about this for a second. Cause this was part of your upbringing. It sounds like a pretty important one. If your dad was actually running the local outfit, I've only seen one other person, um, whose parent was the, uh, who was in the Sea Org, whose parent was heading up CCHR for an area, Texas, uh, the um, uh, Boswell, the something Boswell was the, was the guy who headed it up and his son was in the Sea Org and he was a world-class dickhead, but that's, that's just that guy. That's not any statement about uh, the Boswell family or something. And I was talking about that kid, but yeah. what was your experience growing up around this? How fanatical was your dad about CCHR and how committed was he to it? Oh, was, and still is. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he's still, in, he is still, in. he is still involved. Um, unaware as to whether he knows about my YouTube channel and I'm speaking out yet or not, but, uh, he will know eventually. Um, so, the story with my dad is he was actually a psych victim, according to him. So he did get some electroshock mm. um, before joining Scientology. And that actually outqualled him for staff. Um, he, although things were a little bit uh, slacker back then. So he did end up back on, he ended up on proper staff, then got removed. And he was petitioning pretty much throughout all of my childhood to get back on the staff. Cause he's not a, like the reason that you can't go on to staff as a psych uh, victim is because of implanting 
according to Scientology. They think you're you're a plant. Right. So they don't trust you, essentially. Yeah, and, exactly. It's a bit of a convoluted thing. Maybe we could talk about this um, step by step here. Um, first off, I guess, what was you, you said your father had received electroshock therapy? Okay. In the 70s. In the 70s. Got it. And um, what was it he was trying to... Do do you ever get the whole story on that as to why that happened or what it was that led him to that? No, I do know that he was committed at some point and then given the electroshock therapy. Um, I don't actually know why. I never really asked or don't remember asking. But um, all I know is it did happen and it's something that he fought to uh basically petition to be on staff for years like he really wanted to be a staff member that was his purpose Mm. so all this time that he was the executive director of cchr he was volunteering so Mm. as little pay as a staff dude get in vancouver he never got paid for it he went in every day you know he worked on his weekends and so forth as well as raising me plus having a full-time job so very dedicated, but they never trusted him enough to let him be on staff because of that incident. Yeah, exactly. It leads back to um, Hubbard's ideas that there is a thing he describes all the way back in 1951 as pain drug hypnosis, where you can uh, administer pain to somebody and drug them at the same time. And by doing that, you can place them in a state of suggestibility or, or hypnosis. And, um, and then feed ideas to them that they will not later remember. And this is very Manchurian candidate stuff. And oddly, Hubbard was writing this, oddly, I say, coincidentally, if if we will, around the same time that brainwashing and CIA mind control and, you know, and the Korean War and the Manchurian candidate was all over, you know, the press and all over everybody's uh, paranoid minds in the, in this, you know, at the starts of the start of the cold war. So this was a very cultural thing that Hubbard was trying to play on. And he ended up writing a whole bunch of science, what became Scientology dogma, you know, the, literally the belief set came out of this whole time period. And so the idea that people can be taken by or kidnapped by psychiatrists and, given PDH, pain drug hypnosis, or, you know, as Hubbard might also uh, say, standard psychiatric treatment, because <laughs> he yeah. really hated psychiatrists. And, um, and so if somebody has had, uh, for many, 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 many years, I think all the way up until about 2013 or 14, when they changed this, um, there was a policy in Scientology called the illegal PC policy, the illegal preclear policy. In other words, it was, you were ineligible to receive Scientology auditing if you had what was considered an extensive psychiatric history or background, including institutionalization or what they called extensive drug history was the main line determination for this, as I remember. And um, people would come in and they had taken Ritalin or Prozac or been on some kind of psychotropic or like your dad had been institutionalized. And we would just go, well, uh, sorry, we can't really do much for you in terms of auditing. You can read the books, you can do the classes, but we can't 
audit you. And Scientology's mainline activity is auditing. And so that also would make a person ineligible to be a staff member at a Scientology church because they are an illegal PC and therefore can't do all the things staff members are expected to do. Uh, Does that sound about right? It does, except he went clear. Did he? So he wasn't an illegal PC. It was just some other point. Yeah, I mean, ah, oh, okay. If we're if we're being completely honest, yeah, this is clear clear in the seventies. Okay, yeah. So, and he never got through the the clear certainty rundown uh, when that was released, and he actually never received any more auditing successfully past that point, with the exception of some sec checking, like the Joburg auditing and and so forth, some extra stuff like that. Right. But they kept regging him for money for his OT levels, um, but knowing full well that he would never actually be able to do them. Right. Seen that before. What, how did he, okay. So now I'm a little curious because if he had that history, then he clearly was an illegal PC in the seventies and eighties when that policy existed, unless did that policy not exist in the seventies? No, I think it did. How did he go clear? I don't know. I'm so curious about this now. Was it, was it a field auditor? Did he get auditing in the org? At the org. Huh. So somehow they made an exception. Yep. I mean, money. Right. Well, there were some cases where you could petition. You could you could send up a request to this very high, high senior person up at international management. A Sea Org member is called Senior mm-hmm. CS International. And you could get okayed. And sometimes we would help people craft their petition Yep. To, to be okay for auditing and contribution was a big part of that because it would help overcome that distrust factor you were mentioning because that was a real thing. I mean, we are always illegal PCs like, oh, you don't quite know what, what happened to them. Plus, if they were electric shocked, was there neural damage and blah, 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 right? And Hubbard would talk about how neural damage would prevent auditing from working. Yeah. But um but interesting. So he got all the way to clear in the 70s and then was halted there and couldn't move forward. So that became, uh, so I guess he, that illegal PC or some other thing about that came back to the forefront for his OT levels. Yep. Huh. And staff. Like, I can't even tell you the amount of times he, he petitioned because he would put in all these years and years. Like, we're talking, he was on staff in Toronto and in the GO and then moved on to, cchr in osa for so i guess it was like at least 20 years of staff and still there's no trust there for him to not you know to be allowed on staff properly oh how interesting so he was also this first i'm hearing about this that he was also in the guardian's office yeah just before it disbanded same with my mom that's that's right around when they joined so oh in the mid to mid to late 70s i guess yep okay Okay, well, see, that Guardian's office stuff might also be one of the barriers for him. How long was he part of the Guardian's office? I don't know for sure. Okay, but a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Because if, if, you're, if you're not familiar out there, folks, um, the Guardian's office were the guys who got busted hard in 1977 when the FBI came and raided Scientology headquarters, and including the headquarters in Canada as well as in the United States, if I remember right. Yeah, Toronto. Yeah, and they and they came in hard because Scientology had been infiltrating government offices in Canada, in UK, and especially in the United States. And by infiltration, I mean full on infiltration and stealing <laughs> files, and like really 
real intelligence work kind of, you know, spy craft stuff. And yep. to this day, um, the, the, the church of Scientology is, is infamous for having been the, the private, uh, organization that is guilty of enacting the largest surveillance program against the United States government that's ever been busted. I mean, it yep. was really, really something. It went on for years and years and years. Yeah. And that's what led to that whole raid and the GO being disbanded. And then anybody internally within the world of Scientology who was part of that, connected with that, they all became like persona non grata and like stay away and we don't want to, you know, and nah. So it, it was an ugly, ugly situation because a lot of people who were very, very, very dedicated, hardcore Scientologists um, doing exactly what they were ordered to do, uh, you know, got the cold shoulder in the, and short shrift after that whole bust. Uh, I guess your dad was maybe somewhat connected with that, possibly, at least as far as the uh, consequences of it all. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he was involved in any kind of uh, government infiltration specifically, but he just did work for them yeah. uh, as well as my mom. And in fact, one of the people who he's not allowed in the org anymore due to the fact that he does background work for OSA, but he was, he's still doing that to this day. He was in the geo in Toronto. And part of that, his name is Phil Helmer and he has actually surveilled the likes of Jerry Armstrong, uh, including, you know, befriending him, moving in close to him. And there's a whole write up on it on his blog, but it's just what they do. Right. So, wow. Is he still in? Yeah, but he's not allowed to go to the org at all. He just DSA runs him and he does like spy stuff for DSA currently. And, uh, but he's, and he writes about it on his blog. No, no, no. Sorry. Jerry Armstrong. Oh, Jerry broke it all down on yeah. his. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Identified him. I, I was all backwards on that for a second. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> totally got it. Yeah. So Jerry's been exposing who this guy is and what he's been up to. Yeah. But yeah. he's still active. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it, it, I, I, I'm, I'm laughing, but not humorously right now in that there were survivors of the geo thing. I, I, I didn't mention this a minute ago cause it would have made it a lot more complicated, but there were people in the geo who we could say have a very particular set of skills <laughs> yep. and they managed to survive and thrive even post geo and doing work for OSA and stuff like that. Um, and then there were others who just got short shrift and got busted and even 11 folks went to jail. So it was, it was a big deal. Yeah. Okay. So this is your background growing up is this is what's happening in your household as you're growing up is these are your folks must, I mean, that's about as hardcore believers as you can get short of having Sea Org parents what was it like growing up there? I mean, comparing it to how you've, you know, kind of out in the big world now and, and all that's behind you. How do you look back on your childhood and and how your parents, how did your parents treat you? I mean, were there, how hardcore were they in their, in their application of Scientology with you? Well, certainly, um, definitely like conditions and ethics and so forth was, a, you know, a part of life. Uh, but they, they're very big adherence to, I'm just a big Thaden in a little body. Um, so I am a, I am treated as an adult 
I expect to be, to act as an adult, you know? Um, so that was part of my daily life. Oh, now man. looking back on it as part of my recovery, which, you know, you have helped with as many as many other people through, um, describing Scientology and what it truly is and helping educate. Yeah. Um, I noticed that it, it's definitely is wrong. It's abusive. Um, like I was brought to surveil SPs with my dad. What? Well, there's not where I'm not going to hang up on myself at home. He's got a job to do. So I was brought along to just like surveil people's homes, including Jerry Armstrong uh, on a few occasions. And, you know, cause he doesn't live far from us. And um, yeah, it's just, it was normal though. Right. Like this was just how I was raised. So at the time, nothing to compare it to. All my friends were Scientologists. All my friends' parents were Scientologists. Uh, and that was just my life. Right. Well, I you definitely know? understand that. Definitely yeah. understand that. But you had a more hardcore experience than I did. No question about it. And my dad never was taking me to surveillance. My goodness. Um, how old were you when that was happening? Uh, so when my parents divorced, I was around eight. Um, and so just like the, the years after that, so between eight and let's say 12 and 13, which is when I started getting involved in more in the course room and, and stuff in the church. Right. Right. Which led to the Sea Org. Um, okay. So you went with your dad and I guess your sister went with your mom then when they split. Yeah. So backstory on that, cause that'll lead, lead into some Sea Org shenanigans. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom um, who has, she just recently passed away. Um, oh. but, uh, so she and the senior CS in Vancouver were having a relationship while my mom was still married. So my parent parents divorced. Um, she got guardianship of me and my sister and then my dad didn't. So we all went to live with her and Frank, who was the senior CS at the time. And now her 2d, uh, but I didn't like him. <laughs> he was a bit of an asshole. And my mom obviously was very much in love with him, was kind of defending him a bit more. We ended up having a big argument and I said, fine, I'm out of here. I'm going to live with dad. And that's how that kind of, I ended up over there. But legally my mom still had guardianship of me. God. That never changed. She just agreed that I was better to have me out of the household. Cause again, I was a bit of an ass, right? Like, <laughs> Well, you I'll were, admit it. You well, were you an ass, or were you just not happy with the situation of your mom cheating on your dad and then going and living with this guy, or what? Yeah, I mean, that could be could be a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of looking at the whole situation, going, yeah, this is kind of screwed up. Yeah. What? Um, and yeah, I could see how you might not want to get along with any of that. So you're eight. So was that all pretty quick, or did that take a while? Because you said the divorce happened when you were eight. How soon till you were over with your father full time? I don't know specifically, but it was pretty quick. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so like within, sister. within the year kind of thing. Got it. Okay. So eight or nine years old and you're over with dad. Now, what is he doing for full-time? I'm just curious. What was he doing for full-time work that wasn't Scientology related? Uh, so him and my mom started a window cleaning company uh, and he's still running it now. He doesn't do the work because he's significantly older, obviously. Mm -hmm. He's around 80 now, mm. uh, but he just runs it. Okay. Okay. Got yeah. it. It's Pretty typical for Vancouver Scientologists to have a window cleaning company. Really? Uh, it's just a thing. Yeah, there's multiple. Wow. 
That's yeah. funny. I wouldn't be the only Scientologist I've ever heard of who had a window cleaning company or something akin to that. Some service yeah. industry hustle to get your work, you know, find some steady contracts and and hopefully that'll keep things going, you know, uh, but that's kind of hard. It can be some real um, street beating kind of work, you know, trying to, trying to keep the, trying to keep it going. Well, how was it? What was it like financially for you growing up? Uh, not good. Uh, I, I mean, obviously I was being sent to the school for $600 a month. So that was kind of my, that was kind of my thing, right? Like that's what I got. You know, I, I really raised myself. Um, my dad was very, uh, absent. He was either working or going to, going to, uh, the church for, for uh, staff course, et cetera. Um, so I just kind of raised myself and I, you know, I cook my own food and uh, I did get involved in some uh, light criminal activities when I was younger, when I, you know, like some shoplifting and so forth like that. So I was kind of going down a, a bad path, but then I fixed all that. Um, yeah. That was just kind of how I was raised. Okay. But I, right. I definitely did some dumb stuff. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, it, you know, kids, right? Typical childhood. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't sound like anything too extreme. Um, I'm wondering, there is often a question that people have. I don't really have this question because I know the depths and depravity of cult belief and, and what it will do to somebody. But But I know a lot of people have a hard time getting their wits around how trying to work for a cult, getting the good graces of a cult, you know, progress in a cult, how that will almost routinely make a situation where parents become absentee, if not just straight up abusive or a mixture of both in some, you know, one way or another. Often there is um, just neglect. There's uh, a lot of authoritarian kind of abuse of, you know, you are going to do this and this. It's a lot of heavy control environment kind of thing when they are dealing with their kids. But for the most part, they just don't seem connected with their kids much at all. And the whole, you know, uh, kids are adults in little bodies thing and they can take care of themselves and all of that. Plus, of course, you know, it used to be a little bit of a different culture back in the day where kids were a little bit more independent. And I don't know oh, yeah. that I don't know that helicopter parenting is a solution to all of this. But there is a there is a sort of question about how can parents be so neglectful of their kids or not pay attention to their kids or even really seem to love them very much? What, how did the, how did when I asked that question or throw that out, how does that relate to your life and your relationship with your folks? Uh, so with my mom, you know, we had a short time together, of course, because uh, I really didn't, we didn't see each other past a certain point, mm -hmm. but she was much more authoritarian, authoritarian than I am, than uh, my dad was. Mm. Um, my dad was just kind of absent. He loved me very much. Like, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. And the great thing with him, even now, uh, although we don't talk very much, if I, he knows that I wasn't interested in Scientology when I left mm -hmm. and he wasn't trying to force it on me. Cause he has the viewpoint that if you don't want to do something, you just don't do it. Okay. Like, and so when I said, I don't want to have anything to do with it, I wasn't speaking out against it, but I don't want to do it. He said, that's fine. And he actually like would refuse to give my personal information, like phone numbers or emails or anything out to people from the church that would ask for it. So very respectful that way. Okay. Just not around when I was growing up, you know? Right. Right. Well, it's a different story. She was, she was much more uh, of an ethics officer, I would say that. So that kind of attitude. 
Um, like describe for example, that, yeah, describe that a little bit more for people. Yeah. So for example, so, um, I grew up in a, in Vancouver and a little townhouse complex and across the street was a house uh, with a cherry tree, you know, huge cherry tree. And I would often climb that tree and eat cherries. Right. Sure. I was like six or seven. Right. I was a, I was an absolute monkey. Right. Um, and one time I got caught doing it by the person who owned the tree and they knew where I lived. So they went over to the house and my, my mom made me go over there and apologize and work for the person to make amends. Right. To be like $5 worth of cherries that I ate. But like, I was in a lot of trouble for this seemingly pretty innocent thing for a little kid to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe different as an adult going on someone's property and trespassing and whatever, but I was like five or six. And that's a very formative memory of for myself in regards to my parents, my mom is that's the level of control there was in ethics. That makes a lot of sense. I can't help but when you say, I wasn't necessarily going to share this, but since it parallels what you're talking about from my own experience and because it was formative, it's worth mentioning here, I think, that I spoke out in class one day on a field trip and uh, said some smarmy comment. I don't know that I even need to get into what it was. It was just some snarky comment about how how stupid people used to be back in history. And we were getting some astronomy lesson about how people used to think the earth went around, the, 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 the sun went around the earth or something. The earth was the center of the universe or whatever, right? And I was like, well, that was stupid. And... It was just a, you know, it was just a joke in the middle of class. And I ended up doing conditions to that teacher, right? At home, I got the note to the, to the to home and, you know, Chris spoke out in class and it was very embarrassing on this field trip and blah, blah, blah. And my mom was just fit to be tied. And so I was like trying to figure out the hardest part for me of that whole thing. It took me like half an afternoon. And I'm, I'm talking about like seven years old, seven or eight years old, right? Very young was, um, what am I supposed to do to make up the damage to my teacher? I, I, I said something stupid. What do I do? I was trying to give her my quarter for my allowance or something. And my mom's like, she doesn't want your quarter. And I was like, well, what does she want? I don't know. <laughs> it was all so confusing to me. The condition formulas, these step-by-step things you're supposed to do to improve your conditions in life. That's what these things basically are. Um, were very, very confused to me as a kid. And my mom just kept trying to, my mom was an ethics officer. So it's funny. There's a little parallel there anyway. Um, okay. So that's kind of the situation you had growing up. So I can see why you might've wanted to be with your dad rather than your mom. <laughs> How'd your sister do in that situation? Have you guys ever compared notes? Uh, you know, we, we have reconnected as adults and we're working on, um, kind of unpacking stuff from the past. She, she was, re- um, she was subjected to a lot of abuse. She was on Scientology staff, uh, and including, um, you know, um, child S S you know, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say, but I don't want to demonetize or anything, but, um, Oh, definitely, we're talking you know, she was abused. Yeah. In, you it. know, that way, mm-hmm. um, as when a she staff, was younger. And on, so as a, sorry? as a kid in the org on staff in um, the org. Um, and that's, that's a story for that. She's working on in therapy right now. And she's right when she's ready to tell, yeah. we're going to bring it out. But, um, the point being that she has kind of, uh, blocked a lot of the memories. And in fact, ever since I've started my YouTube channel, um, and we've been talking, 
she's been kind of unpacking stuff and it, and things are coming to light, which is amazing yeah. for her recovery and that. Um, but her and I didn't really talk after I had left because it created this rift. Mm. Um, one thing that, you know, w- as you know, PTS technology, so someone connected with a suppressive person is a p- potential trouble source. They're going to get sick, hurt, et cetera, according to L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. So she was told that my dad was suppressive by my mom. Um, and so she, when, when she was younger, she ran into a situation where, um, she ended up getting pregnant as like about 15 years old. And my mom said, you either have to have an abortion or go live with your dad. But because she believed that my dad was a suppressive person. And then if she went to go live with them, that he would, she would get sick or whatever. She opted to have the abortion because of that idea in her mind. Right. So you I mean, know, that's kind of years the, old. Was she ready to have a kid too? No, and it Damn. wasn't. It wasn't something. What a it wasn't a situation where she was volunteering. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. No, the whole thing sounds just completely awful from is, beginning yeah. to end. I, I don't imagine any part of that because it's horrible when you're in a position where you're in a cult. That's bad enough. Then you're assaulted. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. bad enough. Then you're pregnant. That's bad enough. At 15, right? And yeah. then and then your parents are separated and your dad's, uh, you know, uh, not an SP according to the church, but according to your own mom. I mean, it's just like every single personal or interpersonal stressor. It, it, it's just, I mean, how do you navigate this and, and, and say, you know what I mean? It's like, there's just no clear cut right path here. It, yeah. It, and it's it, completely unnecessary. For it to be complicated. Yeah. 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 Like, this it, doesn't need to happen. No. And because the cult and all the other crap just pile on more and more double binds, more and more. Well, you can't do this and you can't do this. And so you're stuck, but you got to do something, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. What a mess. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So she's sorting all that stuff out for herself and good, good on that. Yeah. Um, wow. And your mother has died. Okay. And your father's kind of old. Okay. Got it. So, okay. So this is the environment you grow up in. Was there, were there, were there other aspects of this? We've been spending quite a bit of time talking about this and I, I don't want to pass over anything else. That's an integral part of this or anything else you wanted to cover on it. Um, were there any other details of your, of your, you know, young upbringing that we should be talking about here? Um, I think those are the, that's kind of the, the key factors to it. Um, obviously from the divorce to getting onto Scientology, actually services in the basic course room. And then next would be being recruited to the Sea Org. Yeah. Yeah. What was it that impelled you? Was it your dad just saying, go down to the church and start these courses? Or did you express a desire to go do that? How did that happen? Exactly. Um, well, I think it's, it's mainly, um, wanting to please parents. Mm. Like I get that. I get the sense. And again, this is like, I'm 41 now. So this is 30, you know, 30 years ago. Um, so memories are definitely, and emotions are faded, but I, I do get the sense that it was more of a trying to please my dad, be like him, you know, follow in the footsteps, etc. cetera. Um, and that's just kind of what you did. And then I think it was also convenience for him because he's remember he's working full time on staff uh, not on staff, but on staff. 
full-time as well. So what does he do with a, you know, 10, 11 year old kid that he didn't actually even really want. Right. Cause that wasn't planned. And I, you know, it's like, he never had that fatherly instinct. Let's just say that. Oh. Um, so I think that that, it just kind of makes sense to have me there. And then obviously if I'm in that environment, what am I going to do? Right. I can't just go running around annoying everybody all the time, even though I did that too. <laughs> of course. No, I, there's a lot of parallels in our, in our upbringing with some of that too. I growing up at a mission and, uh, you go into the org there. Um, wow. Okay. So you start doing classes, you're there for a few years doing that stuff off and on and going to a private school. And so it's really hardly any surprise at all that, uh, some Sea Org recruiters come to town or how did it happen that at 14 years old, you're joining the Sea Org? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as, as usual, they, they have their mission. Mm-hmm. They go to each uh, church of Scientology and find the people who are willing to sign that contract and recruit them. Um, so I was recruited. I did have the goal at the time to be an auditor. And so they, uh, they, you know, played on that and they, they, uh, recruited me for, uh, pack base down in Los Angeles, the big blue building. Oh, so you were recruited by pack recruiters, not Canadian sea org recruiters. Yeah. Okay. So a big, what, what year was this? Uh, 96. So as you can guess, it was the golden age of tech evolution. Yep. That's when uh, I arrived in, I, I had arrived in PAC just a few months before you. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I was, uh, obviously golden age of tech, you know, huge thing where David Miscavige basically re-released all the technology and invented the the new e-meter and the drill simulator and all this stuff to make auditing quote unquote standard. Um, and so there was a huge push to get people down there and I was slated to be an auditor. Okay. Um, the problem with that mm-hmm. is that um, my mother had guardianship of me. And so I was sent down um, under a religious workers visa at 14 without my guardian's permission which would mean that I was legally kidnapped and trafficked down to work for the church of Scientology. Of course. Of course. Uh, whether the recruiters were aware of this or not, I don't know. Would they have cared? I also don't know. Um, but ultimately I went down there and I got sick. Uh, well, first I actually injured myself. I was working in the galley and I'm not sure if you spent time in the galley down there, but I'm yeah, sure man, you did. I was, I was on the RPF. I know every yeah, exactly. square inch of that. I didn't galley. want to presume. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely know that galley. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So yeah. as you know, you got the, the big, uh, pots that mm-hmm. cook the disgusting bland oatmeal in, yep. uh, with the stainless steel floor for easy cleaning and the pipes that run between all the pots. Right. That's right. And let's be clear. We're talking about pots you can fit in. They're huge. Yeah. They're like five feet across. They're gigantic, big industrial, you know, size kitchen pots. Uh, and yeah, that's what you're talking about. And they have pipes, uh, gas pipes and and stuff to be uh, be heated. Yeah. Yeah. And those pipes get very hot Mm -hmm. as I learned. So I was mopping up after cleaning the inside of these pots that I could, I I could literally fit in myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, my legs slipped and wedged underneath one of the pipes Mm -hmm. and burnt my leg. Mm -hmm. So I got injured and I was sent to ethics because obviously I was out ethics for that happening. Obviously. Uh, I, was de- 
was um, put through a PTS handling. And that PTS handling um, resulted in my mom finding out what had happened. And then she pulled me back up to Canada to uh, because she didn't she didn't get permission and she was raising a huge flap uh, locally and obviously with the L.A. Um, sea Org. Right. So I was she finds out way after the fact of you getting down there and doing this work because she because she and your dad were not in touch and you hadn't communicated to her because you weren't in touch with her. But suddenly this becomes uh, a huge issue. Big deal. Yeah. And she was raising a big fuss. And if anyone listening knew my mom, um, she she would you she, people would have heard about it. Believe me. Um, so I, I got coached while I was down in Los Angeles on what to say to my mom as a 14 year old um, to convince her that this was my decision uh, to join the Sea Org and the billionaire contract and all that stuff. Yep. And I was fully aware of, of what I was doing. So I flew back up to Canada, met with her as well as a couple of the family members and convinced her. So she signed the papers and I got sent back down. Then I got sick. Um, with light pneumonia, essentially, um, and did the PTS handling a bit more. And then uh, they made me write a disconnection letter from her because they identified her as the suppressive person. Wow. So your mom thinks your dad's an SP. Scientology thinks your mom's an SP. Well, in Scientology's eyes, because she, one, th- one part of the story I didn't tell you was the, the senior CS that she was with, Frank, um, was down at flag. He was a staff member of Vancouver down at flag for training in the early nineties before the golden age tech. And he blew. And so he did get declared. Um, oh. and so technically because she went with him still, cause she was not involved in Scientology at that time. Oh. Um, when I was down there, she was a suppressive person per LRH per Scientology ethics. If you're connected to a suppressive person, uh, voluntarily and continue to be your suppressive person as a result. Got it. So what they, one thing I I didn't say. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's why they identified her as a suppressive person. Right. And they made me write up a disconnection letter and that disconnection, uh, got sent up and we didn't talk for over 15 years after that. Oh, wow. And this was all because they needed you to, they needed her to stop being your legal guardian yep. so that they could then transfer that to somebody down in PAC or whatever. And then you were under their control and then she could be an SP. Then it's like, ah, fuck that lady. Right. Yep. Okay. Got it. How interesting. So she was no longer FBO Vancouver. She was no longer working at Scientology when all that went down. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So of just to clarify that timeline. Yeah. When, my parents got divorced. That was right around when Frank had also got declared just shortly after. And so they kind of stepped away. Oh, at that same time. Oh, yeah, okay. So around that time. Oh, so your sister was not raised as an org brat hanging around in the Vancouver org. She was off with mom and Frank. Yeah. At the age of about 14 is when she stopped. Um, they stopped being involved in Scientology there. She's four years older than I am. So. Okay. Okay. Got it. So it wasn't too long after Frank's blow. Okay. Got it. So, wow. What a, what a, 
It's super convoluted. Super convoluted. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. I was I kept coming up with sorted, and I was like, sorted's not really the word, but yeah, complicated for sure. It is. Yeah, this is a very, um, very real story with a lot of very real people doing a lot of crazy stuff. Um, how interesting. Okay, so her Scientology experience was what she had as a kid, but then it was kind of her upbringing under mom and and Frank. Yeah. Okay. And that, and your mom sounds pretty hardcore. So I'm surprised if I might comment for just a moment. I mean, she must've really been smitten with this guy. If he blew flag got declared and she stayed with him rather than staying with Scientology, even though she was so hardcore. That's a really good point. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, she, um, she passed and we had, I had to go back up to Alberta which is where she was to deal with her estate. Um, and she actually kept a lot of information from the past, including all of her Scientology materials and um, documentation on the way the org was being run back then, including a very large five page knowledge report on all the staff members um, that she had sent up to uh, the CLO to try and handle the situation. Um, and this is right around that same time. So, uh, where was I going with that? Uh, she was definitely very hardcore. Um, and even though Frank was dealing with, dealing with all this, she felt the org was out ethics, right? Not them. Right. Um, so that was kind of how it made it all. Okay. And she left because Scientology wasn't being standardly applied. There was according to her, no HCO. And for actually, I found out for years, she'd been um, trying to figure out what the hell happened with her career in Scientology because she was super dedicated. And she emailed or wrote the um, executive director in Vancouver at the time. And he wrote her back, basically apologizing there was no HCO. And if there was an HCO, then it probably wouldn't have gone this way, et cetera. So it's super complicated. And the more stuff that I find the more complicated, but also clarified it, it becomes right. Yeah. So yeah. I wasn't involved in this at the time. This was, I was living with my dad and I wasn't told all this information. Oh and no, only, no, of course. Only through local stories from family members. Right. Um, am I finding all this stuff out? Oh yeah. No, it was uh, no, no different than growing up and passing a mission during the mission holder blow up. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, crazy things going on all around me and I'm, you know, 10 years old watching all of this, not having any idea what the hell's going on years after the fact clarity starts coming in as, as you start talking to your parents in a different way. And as you start getting other information from other places and you start kind of putting the pieces together in a very different light and it starts making all kinds of different sense. I imagine Vancouver, um, you'll have to help me with this. Cause I don't really know. I was never, I have no real data about Vancouver other than most Canadian orgs are small limping along, you know, podunk kind of places. I don't imagine Vancouver is a whole lot different. No, definitely not. Um, when I was on staff, I think the maximum amount of people, including people who were away for training was like 40 right. or so. Right. Um, that's right. kind of the max back when my mom was there. She lists out everything, every single staff member and their post. And I think there was about 20. Right. 
And that's and that alone is part of the problem because they have an organizational structure that demands a lot of activity. And if you're, you know, and you need about 90, 100 people to, to kind of put the framework there to run the thing. But <laughs> the big illusion of Scientology organizations is that they're going to work at all because there is, you know, you could put a thousand people there, but it's, but the structure and the way it's organized and the way people are utilized is so self-destructive. Ultimately it's so, it's so not the way you would want to run things. Um, that it sort of it gets in its own way all the time, just structurally, just systemically. I mean, then yep. you throw in all the drama and the misunderstandings and the people who you know want to use the system for their own benefit, and which you can do, and mm -hmm. some people do, and they tend to be you know the people who who take advantage of other people locally. It's a and and we see this I, I, just because I've been to so many orgs over so many years and saw so many different. Um, manifestations of all of this, you know what I mean? That, it, that it, you just realize this thing just doesn't work no matter how you do it. You know, yep. it's kind of that kind of thing. But everybody individually, they don't tend to see that bird's eye view of it structurally. They think all the problems are with the individuals in their area who are just screwing it up. And if they would just stop screwing it up, it would work perfectly. And it doesn't, and it never will, because it's not, that's not the real problem, you know, but, but all the personnel drama and everything and who likes who and who gets in whose way and who's writing up who this week and who's having an affair with who and all of that is so interesting and noisy that it consumes most Scientologists and staff members time and they don't get the bigger picture of it. At least that's been my experience of that. Having said all that, what, what do you think about what I just said? I mean, that's exactly the knowledge report that my mom wrote. That's exactly the point of it. Yeah. Was she, she was talking about specifically, there's one person who was there at the time and is, he's not there anymore because he's retired. But up until a few years ago, he was the executive director and his name is Peter Byrne. Mm. And she was the one that he was blaming like for all the stats being down and the um, the change in the attitude between people and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's accurate because this guy is in, using Scientology lingo 1.1 covertly hostile. And he was like very highly trained and always this stable person, but that our org never did well, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. always. And right. so, if you want, really want to look at the one person that's always been there for Vancouver and investigate, he's the guy, right? Sure. Like you ask anyone who's, who's out now to be frank about him and he's just an asshole. Of course. And he truly is. Yeah, exactly. Well, as I mentioned, some people can come become part of the system and then you realize they can use it to aggrandize themselves and for their own advantage. We had a guy in Santa Barbara who do that. And if he didn't like you, he'd take you into a room, as he did with me one time, and sit there and tell you what's wrong with you for three straight hours until you're in absolute tears and call this why finding. W-H-Y finding. Why finding. If he's going to find your why, he's going to find the reason you're screwing up. Yeah. And he doesn't find the reason. He just tells you what's wrong with you for three straight hours. And that's, that's Peter to a T. Yeah, that's that kind of thing. And there were actually, narcissistic. 
Well, and get this. What, let, me, let me ask you a question because this is a total guess and I could be completely wrong, but let me ask. Was he exec trained? Was he an FEBC? FEBC, KTL, LOC, yeah. everything. There it is. So yeah. was this guy, this guy, Doug, uh, in Santa Barbara. Um, mm-hmm. And they were trained to be that way. Yep. Yeah. They were actually trained to be that way. It's Doug Danoff was the guy in Santa Barbara. I'll name his name because he's still an asshole. But, uh, but there are people, he's, those are the cases of people who you could absolutely frame them as victims of Scientology, but there, are, there is a certain type of person who gets into Scientology or gets into a cult and realizes how they can be in charge how they can use this system to their personal advantage. And Mm -hmm. they know exactly what's going on. Like they kind of have an awareness of like what they're doing and they do it anyway. You know what I mean? They do it on purpose. And I, it's this Peter guy sounds like that kind of guy just from your brief description of him so far. Yep. How interesting. Okay. So that being Vancouver and that whole situation and the thing with your mom, that's how we got onto that was it's, it's pretty convoluted as you said. So, but you went up there, handled your mom. That's how they would have described it. Right. You go up there to do a handling on her. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And then, um, and you pulled it off. Yep. I'm a good salesman. Well, so, so then you go back, right back down to LA and, and continue on in the Sea Org or what happened after that? Yeah. So I went back down. Um, and again, I got, I, I was still sick and I wasn't doing well. Um, and they decided, I think at that point that I wasn't worth the effort. Um, so I, I said, well, you know what I, I originated, I wanted to leave and I said, okay, but to make up for the fact that I wasn't joining the Sea Org, I said, I will join staff at my Vancouver org. Wow. So I did. And this was after, and this was during the time period where you're, where you went back and your mom was just kind of on the outs with the org? At that yeah. Point. I mean, she was probably in, in connection with some of the people still, but she wasn't active. And I think at that point, Frank was already declared. So, but she was never actually declared. Oh, even though she should have been. Okay. Well, yeah, technically she should have been. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that that would have helped anything, but you know, okay. So, so, she, so you go back up there and this is your, are you still 14 at this point? So I, this happened over the course of like three or f- three months, I believe. Wow. Um, so like when I was down there it was just, I, l- I came back just past when the golden age of tech got released. So I was at the shrine auditorium yep. setting up for the event on the EPF at the time. Um, I had been cutting the laminate off of all the little binders and you know, all that, all that work that to set everything up. And then they fired me back to Vancouver and I joined staff in DSA. Um, as the drug-free marshals in charge, which was under DSA there. I'm not sure if it is now or not, but that's what I was doing. And you went Um, back to living with your dad? Yeah. Okay. And so this is all in Vancouver and your dad just kind of welcomes you back or how did that go? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely awkward because you get that certain level of pride for joining the Sea Org and then to head back and be class five org staff. But I guess the good thing is I had something to do, so he didn't have to take care of me. And I was actually in the same office as him because in Vancouver, DSA is on the third floor. You got the actual DSA, like the the person who runs it, the one office. Next door is the PR office. And then there's the uh, CCHR office, all like connected by doors. So Wow. 
Um, okay. Yeah. And DSA is the director of special affairs folks. That's the OSA people. That's the, those are the dirty tricks guys. Yeah. Yeah. And they run all the PR front group activities for Scientology as well, like CCHR and drug free marshals and all this stuff that's supposed to be reaching out into society to be creating good images and good impressions of Scientology. So people will accept it. That's yeah. the whole point uh, is acceptance of Scientology. Um, God. And it's, okay. And you got this little tiny, okay. So you're back in Vancouver now doing this. Now you've already dis now at this point you're back, but you have formally disconnected from your mom. Yep. So you weren't seeing her, even though she was kind of still physically around or geographically mm -hmm. around, but you had already that tie completely. Yep. Completely and utterly. Right. Okay. Yep. Got it. Um, interesting. Wow. So then what happened? Uh, so when I'm in DSA, I was um, doing the drug-free martial stuff as well as a, I would participate in other kind of dirty trick stuff like surveillance and stuff randomly. Mm. Um, but predominantly, I would go around and I would get celebrities to endorse um, the drug-free marshals as a program. We had this massive like foam board um, that had all the points of, you know, I promise not to take drugs to educate, blah, 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 all this stuff. Right. And I would just run around to film sets outside, um, like musical theaters and so forth and find celebrities to get them to sign this thing. Wow. Um, and you're just like this 14, 15 year old kid running around Vancouver doing this. Yeah. I mean, wow. I was pretty independent. Okay. Um, I went to back in the day we had planet Hollywood. And so Vancouver being considered Hollywood North for movies, mm -hmm. always a celebrity in town. And so I would just find out where those film sets were and just walk on with this massive board and a photographer and walk up to these celebrities and just say, Hey, my name is Jeff and I'm with drug free marshals. I'd like you to sign this. Um, and I did that with the likes of like Chris Farley. Um, funnily enough, months before he died of an overdose. Right. And he signed it. Um, of course he did. <laughs> David Hasselhoff. Wow. Jillian Anderson from the X-Files. You know, I caught her. She was like filming three blocks away from the org and she was in full makeup. So she comes out and, you know, poses with me and everything. And um, yeah, it was kind of a trip doing that. Um, it must have been a much easier sell for them because you were so young. Yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. Um, and, you know, you never mentioned that Scientology. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just this drug free Marshall's thing. Hey, no drugs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Here you go. Yeah. And then they use that to endorse and get more money out of members right. saying, hey, look at the good good we're doing. And this is an example of how they do it. It's just that PR. It's false. And then they'll put this stuff in events and so forth and look how good we are and give us money. So it's funny, isn't it? How the assumption on the part of people who see stuff like that is, oh, here's this picture of Jillian Anderson signing this thing. And there's our, you know, OSA representatives. And here's you, this, you know, bright, shiny, stellar 
OSA volunteer or staff member? Isn't he so causative and isn't he so amazing? And I mean, all the Scientologist adults must have just been totally taken with this. And they assume, they just they just had to just assume, oh, well, Jillian Anderson, well, she's fully briefed. She's fully behind this. She understands exactly what's going on. And it was just a photo op. Yeah, that's all it was. Yeah. She but I would, get, I would get my stats up for doing it. Yeah, exactly. She has no idea she's signing a photo or signing something. It's going to be shown at a church of Scientology. I'm pretty sure if she thought that, she'd be like, get away from me, you know? Most likely. Wow. Yeah, that's how it happens. I, I wish people were more aware of just how like opportunistic and silly a lot of this stuff was. Well, and I, I recently did a video um, kind of showcasing that's still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the DSA that's now... Oddly enough, Scientologists don't lock their Facebook accounts. So it's super easy just to pop in there and see what they're doing. And I, I know the DSA now. Um, and her and the old DSA, Susan, they have pictures of them doing the exact same thing. They like during the Olympics, they would go up to athletes and show them the way to happiness booklet, pop a picture, and all of a sudden they're promoting that the Olympic athlete is supporting way to happiness That's right. Or, or the RCMP constables in this big fancy thing. And Rick Hansen, who for non-Canadians, he's, he's very famous Canadian Paralympic athlete, like, you know, very, very famous in Canada, but they use this in order to tout their, you know, the support that is apparently being given to them right. when in fact it's not. Yeah. No, there's no support at all. It's a complete illusion is what it is. And it's just, it's so scummy. And I wish I could say Scientology is the only group that does that, you know, Um, because it's so scummy. It's, it's, it's like YouTube influencer kind of crap. You know, it's like that kind of thing. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's, it's so meaningless and it's so self-serving for whoever is doing it. And it has nothing to do with reality and they don't care. Because they're making money off of it, you know? Yeah, they'll show this stuff at at, at international events and mm-hmm. just use it to keep the flock in line and, and get, uh, it, it worked for me. Yeah, it, it works know? for a lot of people because they don't think about what they're looking at, yep. you know? They just take the context of it as it's given to them and go, oh, well, that means. And they want you to make those inferences and assumptions so they don't have to put the lie out. You know, they don't, they just have to show you the photo and you go, oh, anyway, um, critical thinking and all that. I'll always (laughs) stump for that. (laughs) It's important. It is. It is important. It's the, it's because it, because what's the point of, uh, you know, of going over all this stuff and uh, if if we can't learn from it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's kind of like through my recovery, that's been the point that I try to make to myself that yes, I was involved in this all. I did this all, I got other people involved, but now I know better and I can just use that experience going forward exactly. instead of dwelling on it. Right. Cause I did that for quite a while. Like there's a lot of shame and embarrassment connected with being with this, with this cult Yeah. yeah. as an adult, right? Like as a kid's one thing, but if you choose to be in there as an adult, then there is shame attached to that once you leave, but that has to be put aside and just recognize that you smarten up enough and then use that to help other people, which is what I'm trying to do now. 
Exactly. I I couldn't put it better. Um, well, on that note, so so we're only up to about 14, 15 years old for you. So so what happens after this? This is your job, your drug-free marshal stuff. You're running around being successful. Where does it go from here? Um, this is where it takes a turn for the, for the sad. Mm. <laughs> um, so I don't know when it exactly started, but I, I was having, um, thoughts of hurting myself. Uh-oh. Um, and this was while I was in DSA and I, I had an attempt that was unsuccessful, obviously, um, to hurt myself and unalive myself mm-hmm. for, uh, for the prop, for the improper term, but one that's acceptable here. <laughs> um, and so, I confessed to this and got in trouble for it. Um, and the DSA at the time who was OT something, I think she was on OT five or maybe up to seven at that point, took me into, into the room and said that if I went through with it, I would just end up worse than I was mm-hmm. meaning in the next life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how she handled a 14 year old, 15 year old who was, you know, having these thoughts. That's all she had for you. That was her that was her handling for this. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. I mean, that's not even adults in little bodies. That's just being an asshole. Yeah. Wow. wow. And it's something that um, since then I've struggled with, you know, on a daily basis is depression mm. um, and anxiety and, and all that stuff. So this, this always followed me through mm. shortly after that um, I left staff and just kind of became a public and kind of floated around. I was still pretty young, maybe 17. And so I wasn't really super active for a bit, Um, but still with my dad and everything. You know, it occurs to me right now, this is the first time I've thought of putting it this way, but tell me what you think about this. It seems that there's, you know, there's a lot of denial in the world. There's a lot of people who just don't want to deal with problems or issues and will kind of reframe it or put it out of their mind or, or, you know, try to negate it somehow or something right but self-harm depression anxiety especially in young people it's it is a difficult task to deal with and i think scientologists have the idea that you can just talk somebody out of it i yeah. mean auditing's just talking right so you're just going to talk so I think if we're going to talk, well, somehow I will reason you into why feeling this way is not any good for you. And then you'll just stop feeling that way. And it's I know I certainly suffered from that problem for a very long time of feeling like that's how I could deal with myself or other people is I could just talk to them and it would go away and then we wouldn't have to deal with that problem anymore. And that seems, uh, you know, kind of par for, for the course with your, with the, how the DSA was talking to you. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like a victimization of it. So mm-hmm. it turns you into the victim, um, of your own stuff though. Like you're doing this to yourself. Right. And so you're, you're constantly like, it's in this feedback, a loop of you feel this way, but you're the reason you feel this way. And then that makes you feel worse and worse and worse. And you get into that kind of dwindling spiral and you start, you don't, you never actually get out of it because you never truly get to look at it properly. No, That's what I find with Scientology and their quote unquote handlings. Um, But you're always the cause of it. Yeah, exactly. It could never, ever, ever be that you would sit down with a Scientologist. There's no world where it will ever happen that they would look at your childhood 
your education, your parents divorcing, your Sea Org experience, and and what they do as staff members and the trafficking and the law breaking and all the other nonsense. None of that's ever going to be a factor in why you feel the way you feel. None of it. Right. You've done something wrong. That's right. It's only right here in the here and now you're bothered by some shit you just did. Probably just did. Right. Maybe you've been sitting on it. Maybe there's a chain of of bad things you've been up to. But that's always the answer is some shit you did Mm -hmm. that made your life now non-optimum for you yep yeah that's where they just that right there uh could be said to be where they are completely incompetent to be able to deal with mental health issues well that and you know with my upbringing specifically with cchr and my like my dad being in it and me being involved in it I then can't reach out to an actual professional right. who can help. And it took me even, even a long time after leaving Scientology enough, and I'm going to call it courage because I don't know how else to say it, but courage to like call a counselor, mm-hmm. not a psychiatrist, um, just a, a regular old counselor, um, just to talk. And I felt like so much anxiety and guilt and shame like you wouldn't i can't even describe how much shame i had for going and talking to another human being just because she was labeled as a you know counselor or in anything in the mental health field yeah well i right? can tell you i totally understand that yeah because i was there. i just don't know that people yeah. listening could possibly understand now unless you know and not that i expect them to but no, but it's, it's hard because you're, it, it's, it's, it's a, there, I, I think the word is stigma, mm-hmm. you know, but it's so strong that it's almost physical. It's almost, a, it's like a palpable physical feeling you have that is so strong. You can feel it like a cloud or a blanket over you or something. I I remember so well my first therapy appointment and um, being I mean, my stomach was just in my throat. It was, it wasn't just doing flippy floppies down here. It was full blown (laughs) like gymnastics. You know what I mean? It was so, I was so nerve wracked by what could happen and not knowing what was going to happen. And, um, and so much just, and it was not even like it's sensible thoughts that enter your mind. It's so much, it's so feeling oriented. It's visceral. Yeah. Visceral. There you go. That's just like the, the worst thing that you've ever done, that feeling of guilt that's in your stomach. Yeah. It's like that, but expanded. Right. That's right. (laughs) You know, because this is the worst thing you can do for yourself. That's right. That's That's what I was taught. Like I even had conversations with my dad. Um, when we when I was still living with him, thinking like questioning, how can all psychology be bad? Every single one of them. How can they all be SPs? It's and I like we'd argue about this, and he would he would just have none of it. He's like, no, they're all bad. But I'm like, but how? Like this doesn't logically make any sense that all these people who have this idea of wanting to help could possibly be actually bad. 
That's right. <laughs> and like evil. That's right. But, but the way they the have it, the, well, the way they have it framed is that it's more like these are dark souls who are finding their calling and, yeah. and psychiatry or psychology is what gives it to them in the same way that people who join ISIS or something, it's like they're call, it's like they're violent, horrible, psychotic people. And then they're going to go find the group that's going to cater to their sadism or something. And yeah. it's not that way at all, even with ISIS, but that's, that's sort of this sort of weird concept that people have of this, you know? Yeah. I, I, I kind of gather that might have been your dad's approach, but I don't know. Oh, just yeah, just making up so hard. Because so hard. Yeah, because at the because I don't know if he I, I doubt he ever even saw this, but you know, at the highest, highest, highest levels of Scientology, like deep, deep confidential stuff, is the idea that all psychiatrists are these dark souls from a planet called Farsac. <laughs> yeah. And that and that this is like galactic lore. I mean, this is Hubbard at his finest is that these are evil beings. They're not good Thetans. They're bad Thetans. Yeah. You know, and they are and they have been destroying this universe for millennia. This is just their current incarnation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like the, the Christian concept of the devil comes to earth in bodily form from time to time. Well, that's what psychiatrists are. There's these, you know, there's these evil beings who are trying to do nothing but destroy. The whole thing is such a caricature. It's so cartoonish that it's in its simplicity that it, it's laughable from the outside. But unfortunately, people who are victims of psychiatry, who are legit, you know, victims of it, and they definitely exist. Um, you know, we'll tend to go to this black and white place with it because it's hard to have nuance after you've been victimized, no matter who did it or how. Yeah. And on that, um, uh, character characterization of it, um, my wife and I did a little video together on my YouTube channel, which I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I invite you to check it out. Mm. It's a, it's a fable and we, um, it's a fable in an LRH ED. And we did a little uh, PowerPoint presentation, um, and it's all about it's it's um, metaphorical, of course, in the fable. Yeah. Uh, but it's all about psychiatry and psychology and and how they're tricking uh, society to give them money and so forth and just killing people. But it just really speaks to the black and white thinking. Yeah. And there's no there's no other option, right? That's right. So if you haven't checked it out, take a look at it. I think you'll, I think you'll laugh at it. I will. I'll definitely check it out. Uh, send me the link to it. I will definitely check it out. I will. Yes. Yeah. I want to see it now. Um, okay. Well, okay. So we've covered you that you had some depression, you had some self-harm, you had no help whatsoever from the DSA office and clearly no counseling or therapy. So what happened? Um, so I kind of went a little off the rails, you know, doing some drugs and alcohol and self-medicating essentially for a bit. Nothing hard, just like smoking weed and, you know, drinking beer and so forth. Oh, okay. You, usual teenage kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, I ended up going back on staff a couple other times. Um, in 2007, I was the bookstore officer for when the Golden Age of Knowledge came out. Mm -hmm. um, again, recruited for a big, a big post. Um, and so... Well, that's when they tend to do their hardest recruitment is because they have these needs they have to fulfill, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I did pretty well at that. Um, ended up again, just, I just go uh, on staff anyway, I just go out, out ethics and want to leave. Uh, so 
a couple years of that and I was kind of done and then faded away again, got mm-hmm. recruited again, uh, in 2012, uh, for, so the, the BSO again, and then I was switched to a different post and then I was ripped off by the Sea Org again and recruited for the final time. Really? You went back yeah. in the Sea Org again? Yep. Wow. Okay. Uh, okay. So first off, let me ask you a couple questions about the staff time. Cause, mm-hmm. cause you get recruited for golden age of knowledge. That means the basics that's, this is a time period. What? 2004, seven, six or seven. I think. It was, okay. Yeah. So it was a little, okay. So, so into that I'm down cooling my jets on the RPF down in LA, by the way, while you're doing <laughs> this. So you're getting recruited back to staff and this is the time period when Scientology kind of went into a group psychosis and it's already bad enough in Scientology, but I mean, it really, really went insane with the basics, this, this push to sell all these books and lectures as a package or as different packages and materials anywhere from a few hundred to like 1200 to $2,000, I think American for, for the full blown package Mm -hmm. and everyone in Scientology. I mean, the only reason I got out of this is because I was on the RPF. I actually consider I skated on this one because I don't know that I would have survived this outside of the RPF. The RPF was bad enough and it was, but what was going on outside the RPF was so psychotic that inside the RPF, we were watching it going on in pack and going, these people are crazy. Really? <laughs> yeah, we were, we were like, this is nuts. Um, not with that, not that Miscavige was nuts, not that the books were nuts, but there were people arriving to the RPF for credit card fraud. I mean, we, you know, like, oh, hi, <laughs> you know, well, you're here for, oh, because you went off the rails selling basics. Okay. So we kind of, I had an advance preview, you could say, of just how much damage this was doing to people and to, and to the organization as a whole because of where my position was, right? I wasn't in the middle of the, of the madness, but mm-hmm. what did that mad, what did that look like for you up in Canada? Cause you were way far away from a sea org installation or from all of that intense heat and pressure that we were receiving on the bases. What was it like for you? Uh, you know, I would say it's probably just as intense. So I got really? sent down, I recruited, I had already done my staff statuses, so yeah. I could just go right in the post. I got, um, sent down to bridge, uh, me and the, so I was on foundation, uh, the, the evening church. And then, um, the day bookster officer, we both went down there and got fully briefed on the new, you know, the CD making stuff and the books and, you know, all the stuff, how amazing yeah, bridges and it is tour amazing. of the whole bridge facility. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's like, it's like all the basic football field sizes, by the way, folks, it's a it's gigantic building. Mind blowingly big and yeah. clean. Mm-hmm. Like it's, clean. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Uh, it is actually, it is like when they say it's a world-class facility, it, it is. is, Yeah, but you know, that's on the back of slave labor. So bingo. That's um, exactly right. That's the RPF, by the way. Sorry. I just, that's where I was posted right after the RPF. Oh, I was making books. Yeah. I went right there. I wasn't, I, I mean, you know, uh, it lasted about nine months and then I was like, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's so. fair. Yeah. Um, sorry, before we continue, do you remember the name of the has that was at bridge? Was his name Hans? 
Oh, yes. Hans, the blonde guy. Short blonde hair. Tall, thin. Tall, thin, yeah. Yeah, I remember Hans. He had to deal with me when I was uh, out and out of the Sea Org. Yeah, yeah, I remember we'll get, Hans. We'll, we'll get back to that later then. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so I'm down there. Um, this Sorry, this was in 2007 when I was, I was down there for training yep. on the, the basics and the, you know, the advanced clinical courses and the congresses learning what they are. Cause I didn't know, right. I didn't know this. I didn't know there was these lectures even really existed. Um, did full training, came back, fired back to my org, all gung ho just before the event. Um, and was in charge of essentially making sure the, that every single Scientologist in my area bought them and listened to them. And that was probably the most difficult part yep. was, you know, not only did I have to sell, but I had to then call people up, but like, how far along are you? And, the person, our, our staff, um, deputy FBO for more, the, the person who's in charge of ensuring that all these, uh, materials get bought and listened to, and is in charge of the org book finances yep. was, um, there was two of them, but there was the one that was the worst was this, this French girl who was so intense and her and I did not get along. <laughs> mm. Uh, and so I would, she would be coming down all the time, like trying to what, what Scientology called product officer me. So making sure that I, I get my product done and I'm producing and all this stuff. And yep. me, someone who's not keen on authority, um, which is, which is why I don't think I ever really made it in the Sea Org was cause I just, I push back too much, mm-hmm. you know, getting told I'm backflashing all the time and all this stuff. Um, yeah. So I had a lot of run-ins with her, but I did pretty good on my posts. Um, was I was she, one of the higher, was she, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Was she Sea Org? Yeah. Okay. Her name so was she, Lindsay. Lindsay. Okay. So you had a Sea Org member in Vancouver. There's a, there's usually a couple of them. There was two. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a flag representative or there's an LRH communicator or there's this, you know, FBO or there's this, which we talked about your mom was for a while. She wasn't Sea Org in order to hold that job, but often it is. And then there's this deputy FBO and their job is marketing of org resources. So it's all about marketing, right? In order to produce exchange, right? DFBO for more is what it's called. Uh, cause we don't have enough money. We need more. <laughs> I swear they back figure this stuff out. You know what I mean? They probably said, I want to post and I want to call it the deputy FBO for more. And yeah. we'll just, and we'll just figure out what MORE stands for, right? Marketing of org resources for exchange. And, um, and so, yeah, these, this is a senior position. This is not somebody who's at the same level you were. And so the product officering is this idea that a senior person in a church any church, any Scientology, will run their juniors. You don't just give them a quota and let them go get on it. No, 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 <laughs> none of that. <laughs> you give them a quota and then you check back with them hourly, if not more frequently, as the executive inspects the area of their of the org that they're responsible for, they'll go around to the different staff and they will, quote unquote, product officer them, which is uh, Hubbard even gives policies and quotes and, and whole rundowns on how to do this. But it's basically running them. It's basically like overbearingly um, demanding production from them while they're producing, <laughs> 
It's micromanaging. It's micromanaging. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and it's a whole science in Scientology. I, you know, I should do a whole video just on product off strain. I should go over the policy letter. You there, George Thunderbird, right? That whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, cause it's a whole policy with quotes on how to do this. It's, it is yeah. a science in Scientology and it is one of the ways that Scientology executives are trained to become the worst versions of themselves. And they are told this is how to be an effective leader and an effective executive in Scientology is this is what you do. So uh, hardly anyone, it's not any deficiency or character flaw on your part that you didn't get along with being product officer because (laughs) nobody gets along with being product officer. We all hated it. We hated doing it. We hated receiving it because it's just abuse. At the end of the day, that's all it is. It's unnecessary. And as you mentioned, it's micromanaging. And I think anybody in corporate America or who has a job, you know, similar will understand exactly what I'm talking about because it's not just a Scientology disease. But like I said, they actually take it and ramp it up as bad as you might think it is in corporate America. You ain't seen nothing until you go into a Scientology church and watch this in play. So I don't, you know, so I don't want the audience thinking that was some deficiency on your part that you weren't dealing well with this, you know? No. And I never considered a deficiency. It's just a personality trait. And I just, Mm. it's true. I am. I don't like authority. I I find, I find anybody who thinks they're better or above someone else. There's that's not true. I'm very much an equal opportunity person. Like everyone's opinions and actions, you know, as long as they're, they're educated are, are worth listening to, right? Like, yep. yep. Um, not necessarily that there's no bad ideas, but I'll listen to that idea kind of thing. <laughs> well, you got to give it a chance before you, well, of course. you know, label it yeah. as bad. <laughs> there are bad ideas, but it's oh, 100% first. And I'm guilty of some of them, but oh, me too. <laughs> the king. Um, okay. So, so bookstore officer, God damn. Okay. So you're on, so you're doing that. She's product officer and you, what, how long did you last on that? What was, what was that experience like in Vancouver? Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. I was on there for quite a while. I think uh, a couple of years kind of thing. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was kind of my, my main, like I was pretty good at it and I got, I got along really well with the, um, the bridge representative in the CLO of Canada. Okay. Uh, her name was Emily. She was a little firecracker. She was amazing. Um, and later on, she'll come into play in our, in my story. Mm. But I basically, I was doing really well. And I ju- would just tell the, the DFBO for more to take a hike and leave me alone. And there was nothing that she could do about it because I was upstat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even though I'm giving all this backflash and stuff, but my stats yeah. were up, so it didn't matter. That's one of the things that that is one of the things about Scientology is if you're producing, you really can get away with a lot of a lot of crap, unless you piss off the wrong person, Bingo. and then they just throw a policy out the window. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, ultimately, I just kind of um, I got a little disaffected with Scientology, and um, at the same time, you know, there's there's all this ideal org stuff happening where they're regging people for money, and I'm just looking at it. And I start seeing that it's just about money, money, money. And I didn't like that focus. And then my also my goal of getting trained and so forth wasn't happening. So I just kind of, I left. Um, I don't remember. I think I, I then got in some ethics trouble um, and I might've been routed off. 
Um, I don't remember specifics on that, but oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I do have my friend Gabrielle um, Toth. She has her own YouTube channel while she's starting um, Escaping the Cultiverse A. Um, she is going to be telling stories, and she was actually posted at the same time as me in the in the ethics area. So she, we'll we'll, we'll discuss that and we'll unpack all that um, somehow. I, I, that name <laughs> sounds very familiar to me. Does she have a brother? Uh, don't think so with the last name. No. Okay. Okay. But maybe Chuck hmm. Toth was an OT five. It's her husband. Um, so maybe you've heard that, but yeah, I seem to recall that name from the Sea Org, but maybe it's just coincidence. It's, you know, she's not the only person with that last name. Yeah. Okay, she's amazing. So I'm glad that, so she's fully out as well, obviously. And, uh, she got, she got hammered pretty hard by by Scientology and she's got some pretty amazing stories and horrific stories. So, wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad she's speaking out and speaking up. Yeah. I look forward to seeing her work. So, okay. So basically after a couple of years, you sort of survived this, this nonsense. Did you, let me just ask you this, just as a staff member in Vancouver, um, and I'm not asking you to implicate yourself here, you know, say whatever you want, mm-hmm. but did you in the, in the Sea Org level of the execution of, command intention, so to speak, with mm-hmm. getting these basics into every single public's hands, um, there was so much pressure being brought to bear that people were responding by doing illegal things to get money in, to sell these pra- mm-hmm. packages. They were taking, they were charging people's credit cards without their knowledge. They were getting new credit cards out for people. This was even before the whole chase wave thing, which was later, this was all happening back in this 2007, 2008, nine time period. And there were, um, there were, it was actual criminal activity. And so I guess I'm wondering, it was also exported to a degree in that people were encouraged to do this kind of thing as long as it was getting the stats up. I'm kind of wondering, did any of that bleed over into your realm in Vancouver? Um, you know, predominantly what I recall, I never was involved in getting people credit cards fraudulently or anything. Sure. Um, I don't know that anybody was specifically in Vancouver, but there was a lot of shenanigans, we should say, re- with regard to contacting companies and getting credit limits upped and really ramping up people's credit, um, how, like basically how much they owed, using money that's on accounts, like just like convincing and derailing people's goals in order to get these materials. Like, I think that's the, that's the key factor in it is mm. that they'll the command intention was so intense that it didn't matter whether it was auditing money or what have you. And that caused a lot be, because the accounts are different. So there's, there's Scientology service money, but the book account is its own thing. And you can't take money from a book account to a service account, but you can do the opposite. That's right. And so um, the regular regs will bring in, you know, say $20,000 towards some auditing for a public. Mm-hmm. And then I would go in there and say, Hey, well, let's use that money on account to get you your basics and your congresses and everything. And that would cause a lot of, a lot of issues, but That's right. obviously stats are up. So it didn't matter. Right. <laughs> See, it was funny because it actually would end up costing Scientology organizations more money when they did things like that and without getting 
too deep into the weeds on this, as you just mentioned, it's sort of separate accounts. Mm-hmm. Let me just put this there for people, and then I think we can move on from this, is that um, if a person walks in and pays $20,000 for auditing, that money goes onto their account. There's a, there's a, there's sort of have a, a like a, a tab or a credit limit or not limit, but like that's put on their account that that money is there for them to use weeks, months, years from now for that purpose, but they can repurpose that money. And if you use that service money and the org spends it, that money goes into their weekly financial planning that week and it's spent, it's gone. Yep. It's not like it's saved in some reserve account waiting for the person to use it. And then the church takes it. They take it all right away yep. and they distribute it and we run some up to management and do the various things that they do with it. But what we don't talk about hardly ever is on the book side of things. These are actual material goods. Somebody has to produce them. It's not auditing. It's not a service. It's a thing. And the books and the lectures of L. Ron Hubbard, somebody's got to pay for them. And so when you book that money, when you take that service money and you use it for books, those books have to be reordered. They're taken out of inventory of the local church and they're given to the public person and they have to be restocked because the org is required to keep minimum stocks of their materials. They have to have 10 copies of Dianetics and 20 copies of this and 30 copies of this. And these, and the, and the church, you know, regulates how much their minimum stocks are. So they have to restock that money, which means they got to buy those books from bridge publications and restock it, which means the org has to now allocate money to pay for those, that restock. And if they don't have the money because they haven't produced it or earned it, where are they going to get it from? Their own reserves, their own savings. And they could actually end up negative on the income for a week because of the restock. Have I explained all of that properly as you understand it? Yeah. And you can see why people hated me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because I was a really good salesman. And I, I, you know, having grown up in Scientology and in the Vancouver area, their field is so small, you know, 200, like at a max yep. of people who are in communication with the org kind of thing. Yep. And I knew all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And they knew me from when I was, you know, knees, knee high to a grasshopper. So just having that communication line, it was very easy to sell people. Mm-hmm. And obviously I, I, you know, I, I, I was good at, following through with command intention. And and if I get behind something, I go all in. It's just my, my personality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all in or nothing as my wife likes to say. And, uh, so, you know, I did definitely piss some people off, but yeah, I got my stats yeah. up. So. Well, and and see from your perspective as the bookstore officer, you, you were golden, right? But the, yeah. but the regs or the finance people or anything are tearing their hair out because they're like, Oh shit. We're not going to have any staff pay. We're not going to be able we're, we're we've got all these book stats out the roof and we're broke. And 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 I just explained how that could occur, right? This is this is you know, this is one of those fundamental flaws in the Scientology organization if you will, the way they distribute this stuff because every single church is its own corporation. They're all separate. You don't just call Bridge and say send me some books and they send them. 
You, it doesn't work that way. You got to buy them from Bridge, and they'll give them to you at a discount bulk rate. But you're still giving money, actual money, to Bridge, yep. and that's how Bridge gets its stats up, right? So it does, so the Bridge guys don't care if you're yeah. if you're using money off account in order to sell these books. They'd encourage it. They don't care as long as they're getting their cash. Well, that's their stat. That's right. And so it's, so it's all this, so, so you can have different organizations within the Scientology network actually hurting each other mm-hmm. in the execution of command intention. It's, yeah. it's, it's so outrageously stupid. You just wouldn't believe it's organized the way that it is. It's hilarious. It is. It's absolutely comical. It's so Keystone Cops. And it contributes to an awful lot of this abuse that we talk about that goes on with this group. Okay, so so that was kind of a summation of the experience as a bookstore officer during that mad period. Um, and then you left staff and then you got back. What how, what happened? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I kind of went off off lines completely. I so I'm going to say I was I think I might have been commived off of post. Wait a minute, what? At some point. Yeah, I don't remember specifics on it, so I'm, I can't really speak to it. Okay. Um, but that's one thing I'm trying to sort out because for some reason, my memory of that is kind of like it's super hazy. Oh. And I've actually been going through some old emails and stuff with the church on an old email account because, you know, I never delete any of my emails. So hey, it's all there. Cheers. Um, but I, I know I had an ethics program and I, I dealt with it. Um, and then I was recruited back on the staff in 2012 um i do believe i was back on the bso post this and is then sort I was, of a recurring theme here now two times now you've gone to the sea org basically kind of got busted and kicked out or left and then got back yeah they're really good at pushing my purpose yeah i get that so in 2012 um i joined staff again on foundation okay after i had done my ethics handling and i I think I was on the PTSSP course at that time. Um, and then, then I got recruited again for the Sea Org. So that, this is the second time in 2012. Okay. Um, Emily, the CPLO Canada or the Continental Publications Liaison Officer, basically the person who uh, represents Bridge for Canada, mm-hmm. um, she was going on to some important post. I don't know what it was, but she was slated by somebody to take over a post and she recruited me to take over her post. Okay. So um, this would have put so, you kind of in a similar way with me when I joined the Sea Org, where you're doing something at the class five level at the church level. And now you're in a position where you're kind of overseeing that across the, across Canada. Yeah. So that was the intention. Okay. But what happened? Uh, I was ripped off of post, not replaced. Uh-huh. Um, and I was sent to, the Canadian CLO, which at the time was in a small town called Orangeville, Ontario. Um, and it was uh, a farm, essentially, with a double wide as the um, muster room, uh, galley, and all the sleeping quarters. Because this is a small CLO. This is not big blue. This is not thousands of people or whatever the serial numbers are there. Right. It's a podunk little little uh, CLO, and there's a house that's the office. And at the time, they had just purchased the new property for the new Canadian 
uh, advanced organization. Okay. Which at the point was literally just this rundown old resort. I think it was a ski resort uh, because in, in that area of Canada, although there's not a lot of mountains, there's some like rolling hills. So they have little like cross country skiing and so forth. And that's the, that's the AO. I'm actually not sure if it's open or not. I think it is, but. I don't think they've opened it yet. I don't know that they've opened the AO Canada. Have they? I don't know, but that was 11 years ago. Yeah. I don't think they've opened it yet. It's not surprising. No, it's just like they haven't opened up the AO Latam yet. I mean, they've had these buildings forever. It's ridiculous. Uh, Yeah. And this isn't even just a building. This is a massive property. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a ski resort. It's, it's beautiful. Wow. Well, they just don't have the people to man it. I'm sure. I mean, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's so. I mean, as you mentioned, it's like. I mean, you would. Re, you would need. Uh, uh, you would need to take like an ice cream scoop down to the pack crew. Like you'd have to take like a hundred of them, you know, uh, to, well, yeah. to to man up that that facility. And even then, you wouldn't really have enough people. You'd probably need just a dozen people just in the grounds crew. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or I mean, like, and so to give you an idea, of, like I was on the EPF in Orangeville. There was myself, uh, like a 14 or 15 year old French girl, and there was one RPFer. <laughs> and man, and on that note, I felt so bad for this woman. Because in case people probably don't know, but if you're on the RPF, you can't talk to people. Uh-huh. You cannot speak to a person when you're on the RPF unless you're spoken to. That's right. And so... As an EPFer, I didn't really know that. And I would actually say hi to her. And she wouldn't know what to think. <laughs> She's like, do I talk to this guy? Because I'm not in the Sea Org technically. Right. Um, anyway. And, so, that's, and that's one of many problems with saying there was one RPFer. <laughs> I mean, the RPF is a program you can't get through by yourself. You, you need exactly. two other people at least to be able to do it. I mean, it's a joke that they have this person in limbo up there just being on the RPF. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It was, it was horrifying actually. And I feel really bad for, I hope she's, she's gotten out. Yeah. I don't recall her name, but um, anyway, so yeah, the the RPF there was essentially, you know, the, the, the messed work or the, uh, the labor, it was a farm. So I was literally like, picking weeds out of the garden and all this stuff. And then of course doing my, my basic coursework, mm-hmm. it wasn't happening fast enough per um, the people down at bridge. Cause this was apparently an important evolution to get done. And so to they, get uh, Emily they, to this new job and get you replacing her. Exactly. Yeah. Get me through my APF yep. through the training. Cause the, the CPLO Canada, it's a pretty high end post, right? Like right. bridge publications, it's one of the higher posts in Canada, I'd say, for the Sea Org. Mm. Um, That's funny. So they it, flew me down to Los Angeles because it's considered a not that great post from <laughs> from from the pack perspective. But I could see well, how yeah. out in the out in the out in the cons it would be a big deal, of course. When there's like twenty people on post, yeah, yeah, and half yeah. of those people are in OSA. <laughs> right. Jeez. So. It is so interesting when you told me that, that half the people at the CLO Canada are, on, are in OSA, that it just tells you everything about where Scientology's priorities really lie, you know? Yep. That yeah, is, it's, it's amazing. The The ratio is pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so anyway, so I got I got flown down to Los Angeles and was supposed to finish the EPF at Bridge. I think I was there for a couple of weeks and I was like, no, I'm done. And that's when Hans comes back in to the play. Ah. I said, look, man, I'm out. I don't want to do this. Oh, and one thing I forgot to mention too is uh, when I was on, on the EPF in the in Ontario, I still had a cell phone. Which, anyone listening, so what? Who doesn't have a cell phone? But you are not allowed to have your own personal cell phone with data in the on the EPF. Yep. And they didn't know about it. And so I was like looking at anti Scientology stuff while laying in my bunk. At night, because I was the only, I was the only guy, so I was the only person in this room, um, and so I would just be laying there, just scrolling through all this anti Scientology stuff, and I felt a little trapped, and I didn't have money to get home, so I didn't really do anything about it at the time. But when I got down to Los Angeles, the the reality was really setting in, and the regimentedness, and a lot of trauma actually from the first time I was there when I was fourteen was kind of was definitely uh, uh, surfacing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I said to Hans, I said, you know what? I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore. And I got I got put into a room with him and he reamed me a new one for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And I said to him to fuck off. Mm-hmm. Like word for word. Oh, just straight up. You told Hans to fuck him. Yep. Wow. Okay, that's so, definitely not going to be well received. Nope. And so... Yeah. Um, like they were, they were trying to convince me to get auditing and, and all this stuff. And I said, I don't want auditing. I've never liked auditing. It's never done anything for me. You know, if anything, I enjoyed the training aspect of things. Right. But, you know, and, and just prior to this, I'd been through all kinds of like an HCO confessional um, that was tailor-made for me by a class eight senior CS. Um which basically means the, you received a, a security check that was that with, with questions Taylor made just for you. Yeah. And yeah. very, very detailed. Yeah. Um, like even one point I had to go pretend to go past life to get the auditor to stop talking about things, like getting me to talk about things. Wow. I literally just made stuff up just because I'm like, I can't think of anything else. Like, well, it's, you know, it's not, your needle's not floating. Therefore, we're going to continue. That's how it works. Like started making stuff up. Yep. That's right. Because you're not believed. The E-meter is. Oh, yeah. This is the point I try to get across to people, and I don't know that they totally grasp what I'm talking about. I need to, I need to do a demonstration sometime and actually show it so I can show people how this works. But you, when you're in the room and the meter is responding or reading or whatever, and the auditor's over there convinced you haven't told all, you're fucked. I mean, yep. you're not getting out leave. of there until you come up with some answers, you know? Yeah. And an answer that will make that needle float. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. After a while, you start trying to figure out how to make that thing float. You know, I got pretty good at it. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> After a while, it's a survival skill. I so, just realized I'm a Satan. Exactly. Oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> yeah. The room seems brighter somehow. Exactly. Oh, the colors in the room are brighter. (laughs) Ah, yes, exactly. Um, Um, So, okay. So, so, so Hans is giving you the what for, and you tell him to fuck off. And then what happens? Uh, They routed me out and sent me home. And however, I had to make my way to the airport. You know, I didn't, I had no money and I'm in Los Angeles. I hadn't been there in what, six, seven years. And even then it was like, I didn't know where I was. So I, I made it there and, 
the thing I haven't, they haven't really said though, is so, um, before I joined, uh, staff again, I was dating someone who's my current wife now. Yeah. Um, we had been together for, I believe about a year, year and a half. And I was recruited back to join Scientology again. And they, when I joined the CERG or when I joined staff, they convinced me to break up with her. Um, and the reason being is because her parents, um, are like have security clearances from agencies that would be, you know, not looked upon by Scientology in good light. Right. Alphabet so government agencies, intelligence organizations, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Tax and, uh, and high, high security. Yep. Yep. They hate so, that. Um, so I did. And then I, when I got back from the Sea Org, I immediately reached out to her and apologized and we got back together, thankfully. And we've been happily married for six years now, but, uh, awesome. Yep. Awesome. Good. So out and out. Very out. Damn. Okay. And recovering ever since. Yep. Okay. Well, you know, I, I wish I could say I hadn't heard it all before, but it's just a usual story told, you know, with all the individuality of every single person who brings their own story to this. But I, I think what I meant by that is not to invalidate your story. I meant it's all the same marks over and over and over again. You know, the familial abuse, the child abuse, the unfortunately for your family, the sexual abuse, the, you know, it's just piles and piles of abuse uh, going in and out and in and out of this group and your, your whole life, literally your entire life. And it never, it, it doesn't change. You know, you do, it doesn't. <laughs> and, yep. and, and finally getting all the way out and, and recognizing and realizing it for what it is rather than what it tells you it is or what it purports to be or what it wants to be or whatever, because that's all just bullshit. That's all the smoke and mirrors, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the people in the community, they're amazing, especially mm -hmm. the never ends who support us, um, in our journey, in our fight. Yep. Um, but every story although unique has all these markers and it's super important that if anybody is listening to this, who is involved in Scientology still, and there's a lot of them that listen to that, you know, SBTV or, or, you know, other independent channels and what have you, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. just know that you're not alone mm -hmm. and that there is help. You know, there's, there's myself and I will help anybody who wants to get out. My wife is behind it as well. She's very, um, you know, she's been there with my, my recovery. We, I can't even tell you how many hours we've watched of you, you know, Sunday morning Q and A's and what have you. Like, it's really hard for me to, to describe to you, like how much I, you've been a part of my recovery. Oh. Um, cause you, you like your channel is the one that started it and continues to be it. And I think what you're doing is amazing. Um, you know, there's other channels and other people have spoken out like Mike Rinder and so forth, you know, I mean, Aaron, um, was more of a later on kind of thing, except for his interview with Mike Rinder specifically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously, you know, all the movies and, and documentaries and, you know, Louis Thoreau and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. But it, it just takes one correct word to trigger with, with a person to get out. Yeah. And then it's just, it, it's a landslide. That's right. I recently did a video about, you know, kind of jokingly about how clearing the planet's going. 
And I think it ended up being, if there was no population increase at this point, it's 110,000 years from now, the planet will be cleared. Right. Right. Like, yep. Yep. and it's kind of joking, but it's not, and it's serious. Like, and that's, that's the purpose that staff members have. That's the one common purpose and Scientology, but particular staff members. Yep. Um, right. But it's never, ever going to happen. Nope. It's not a thing. And the numbers are just, they're just, they don't work. <laughs> no, <laughs> you they, know, they don't, well, they don't work at all. And in fact, you know, in my last years, you know, when I was on my way down the route of disaffection, so to speak, mm. I started running those numbers. And I think I'm not the only one who does that. I think that's something that we tend to see when we're in and we start realizing that we can question things and go, well, wait a minute. How long is this going to take? What are we actually getting done? You know, you hear about a hundred clears a week in, in Clearwater or whatever, and you're like, well, that sounds so impressive. But once you start applying some math to it, you realize it's pathetic. It's nothing. It's a drop in the, it's not even a drop. It's a milli-drop in the bucket. And those numbers actually matter because that is exactly, as you said, what we were dedicating our entire life to, but we were never dealt with honestly by the organization we were dedicating our life to. We never were dealt with fairly or honestly. Here's what we're doing. Here's how long it's going to take. Here's the work we have ahead of us. And here's why we need to be doing what we're doing. None of that's ever explained or broken down. You get PR, 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 fluff, 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 bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And if you question it, you get the other end of the stick and they start beating on you and then they kick you out. And that's the, those are the choices that are given to you because, and, and that's why it's a cult. Yep. You know, it's, it's it, like, it's, it, it's, it, it, you don't want to believe these kind of things, not only that they do exist, that they even could exist. But the fact of the matter is they do. And there's lots yep. of them. And, and, and the goodwill and the good wishes and the dreams and hopes and aspirations of its members are really the only thing keeping it going, you know, and they're just taking advantage of all those people. They took advantage of you, me, you know, all of us. Thousands of people. Yeah. Literally thousands. Um, we hope that by sharing these things, you know, and seeing again, these commonalities of experience and the red flags of them that we are helping folks out there, right? Not only in, Scient in Scientology land, but in other groups as well to see what's going on around you. And it's okay to be aware of that, to question things going on and say, wait a minute, hang on. Uh, you told me this and this and this, but these things don't really add up. The numbers don't work. We're not even talking about the numbers, whatever, however you're going to approach it, whatever works for you. We hope that these things will help open some eyes and make life um, not so abusive. Yeah. I mean, that's you know? ultimately what it's about. That's right. You know, get people out of this, the condition that they're in and into a better one. Um, I was thinking lately that what I've been doing in Scientology lingo recently is the liability condition. Huh. <laughs> Fair but enough. to mankind yeah you know because i've been i've been examining the statistics of the group that i'm deciding between and now i'm delivering that effective blow mm. Mm. to the group that i've decided not to be part of anymore <laughs> well fair enough i get that point of view and i will say this um as a final bit in this show today is um is don't let that, while I totally understand what you just said and what you're saying and the analogy you're making, um, 
you're probably already there. Oh yeah, for okay. sure. Good. And it's just kind of, I, I, I was kind of looking at it humorously. Yeah, of course. You know, like if I were to look at it from a science logical point of view, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, it just feels good to speak out and to share my story. Um, and I ultimately a little bit selfishly, I hope it helps a bit more with my recovery because talking about it is important. It is. And it will. And it does. And, uh, I, I feel, I feel very strongly about the power of speaking out and, uh, and whether you do it anonymously or under your own name, whether you do it with your face plastered out there or not do it, yep. it, it, it really does help in a way that I don't know other things could be a substitute for this. No, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. I think communication, uh, talking about your story is very important. Yeah, exactly. And even if it's with your loved one. Definitely right? with your loved one, loved yeah. ones. Yes, please. You know, share, let people know what you've been through, where you're going from, you know, all exactly. that. All right. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you again for taking a couple hours out of your day, helping me out with this, putting, you know, get, getting your story out there. Um, I want to thank you very much. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. And thank you also for your very kind words. I'm, I'm really, really glad that my work was of assistance to you in the way that it was. That's all I'm doing this for. So I'm, I'm glad it's working. So thank you for telling me all that. Mission accomplished. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Well, good. And on that happy note, then let's go ahead and wrap up, folks. Thank you very much for uh, coming around and watching us gap on at a mad rate about all of this. And uh, again, thank you for inviting us into your homes. And on that, we will see you guys. Uh, well, I'll see you guys next week. And, um, and Jeff, maybe we will connect again in the future. Sounds good. Excellent. Thank you. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.